Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes cookware that I use and love at home. Upgrading your kitchen tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. And it's also a great idea to give Great Jones cookware as a gift this holiday season. You can even get Great Jones designs engraved, a very special present. Great Jones products start at $45 and include a ceramic nonstick skillet, a big stainless steel stock pot, and a colorful Dutch oven that looks as good as it works. When's the last time you replaced your pots and pans? It's so important. Go to greatjones.com and use the code DAVE, D-A-V-E, at checkout for 15% off. What a great deal. If you care about how your food tastes, then you should care about your cookware. Again, greatjones.com, code DAVE for 15% off. Today's show is also brought to you by East Fork. East Fork makes beautiful, durable plates, bowls, mugs, and more in Asheville, North Carolina, using regional stoneware clays in a gorgeous array of colors. They make vessels that will elevate the most humble of dishes that look great stacked up tall in the pass and hold up well in commercial dishwashers. Go to eastfork.com and use code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 15% off your first order. It's a great deal for fantastic plateware. And follow along at East Fork Pottery, one word, at East Fork Pottery. That's eastfork.com, code Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Beautiful, beautiful ceramics. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, one of my favorite bands, for letting us use their music in the introduction. This week, we have a great guest that some of you may be very familiar with. I know my wife is, who worked in the fashion business. She loves Mickey Drexler. Mickey Drexler is one of the most influential people of the past 30 years in terms of how Americans shop. He was on the board of directors at Apple for 16 years. Steve Jobs was one of his closest friends. He basically made Gap what it is today, was responsible for J. Crew being at its very peak. He's now working with his son, the fashion designer, Somsack, now at Alex Mill. I actually went to college with Mickey Drexler's son, and uh, he has this cool new brand. I got a new jacket from Alex Mill. Very, very cool. Looks great. And uh, I've just been a big fan of Mickey Drexler's for a long time. He's got great insight, and I'll let you listen to him tell you what he thinks is meaningful in a world of retail shopping, advertising, marketing, what he looks for, because I think Mickey is a genius when it comes to how people consume things. And for people in the culinary world as a restaurant, there are more than enough kernels of wisdom in what he's saying. I think it should be really internalized because it's something that I think about, particularly his concept of value in how we create experiences for customers and how some things are timeless and don't change. And to get someone with his sort of expertise and with his credibility, it was a real honor to have Mickey on this podcast. But before I get started with the conversation with Mickey, I wanted to get into a email that was sent in to us. Usually we answer the Ask Dave at MajorDomaMedia.com questions at the end. This week, uh, we want to start off with it. 
We got it sent in through askdave at majordomomedia.com. We're trying to rotate every week. One week, we will answer questions from our iTunes page. You give us five stars on our iTunes page, and you send in a question, we'll answer it. And also, you can send us an email at askdave at majordomomedia.com, the question. We wanted to answer this first because I think it was incredibly moving, and I wanted to make sure that Carol Song's question and email gets answered first. Carol writes, My husband, Daniel Song, is a Korean-American in the U.S. Army. He is currently deployed in Afghanistan. It has been a really challenging time for a family to be apart and for Daniel to be in such a difficult and depressing condition. However, listening to your podcast has truly been like a source of comfort and escape from his reality there. We would listen to the Dave Chang show together before he deployed, and he continues to religiously listen to it in Afghanistan. We are big fans of Momofuku from your restaurants to your products. In fact, he had me send your psalm sauce so he could use it up to spice some of his bland meals over there. And reminiscing about eating at your restaurants when we lived in New York is something that brings us such delicious and nostalgic memories for us. I just... um, It's really moving to hear, and I'm honored, again, that you would write this, Carol. You continue. She continues. I wanted to thank you for making your podcast a source of comfort and a positive distraction for Daniel during his deployment. I'm also hoping that I could ask you a favor that would mean the world to him. Daniel will be celebrating his 40th birthday on December 8th. Is there any way you could give him a little birthday shout-out around this time of his birthday? It would be the best birthday gift ever. He is missing most of the major holidays and has missed our son's first birthday, as well as our older son's and my birthday as well. This is actually his second birthday that he's celebrating during deployment. But having to celebrate his 40th birthday out in Afghanistan, away from his family and friends, is the most heartbreaking part for me. I know that hearing you wish him a happy birthday while listening to the Dave Chang Show would truly be the best surprise to make it a 40th birthday to remember. We're Daniel Song, happy birthday, happy 40th. Thank you to your wife, Carol, for sending this email in. I was thinking about what it would be like for me to miss my son's first birthday and my wife's birthday and to be doing it in service of this country. And I just wanted to thank you for all of your sacrifice to doing such a thing. I don't take it for granted. And if that, all I can do is say thank you for your support and um, happy 40th birthday. If that's the least that I can do, then I wanted to make sure that we put it at the top of this podcast. Daniel, hope you make it home soon, safe and sound, and you will be able to celebrate many more birthdays with your friends and loved ones. And uh, I just hope that you get to let us know when you're back in town. We're happy to feed you as much as we can. So Carol, send us an email, and I'd love to be able to make sure that your homecoming is a memorable one. But thank you again, Daniel. Hope you're hanging in there and uh, we are all thinking about you. Um, So hopefully you enjoy this podcast. Again, keep on sending those questions in. We'll get to this podcast with Mickey Drexler now. How old were you when you started uh, to run or take over the Gap? Uh, Well, I was uh, 39 at Gap. I I, uh, ran... um, Ann Taylor, 35. That was my first. I went from being a vice president at a now no longer uh, company called Abraham and Strauss. It's now Macy's. Uh, I left that to run uh, to run Ann Taylor. Uh, I didn't know how to be a president or whatever that takes, but uh, I went in 
and uh, just did follow my instincts. The, the so-called corporate headquarters were in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was really on my own. And what then was a very small business with 25 stores, uh, but it was fun. And I just did what instinctively I felt was right to do. Now, instincts are knowledge, history, looking around and seeing what else is going on. Uh, but uh, that was my first uh, running a company CEO job. Did following your gut and instincts get you in trouble when you're younger, like 23 years old, and you're like, why are they doing it this way? I have an idea. Let's do it this way. Well, I, I didn't do is well, I, I, I don't like, um, I'm anti-authoritarian. <laughs> I, I am. Uh, I grew up feeling that way. Uh, now, you don't know what you are really a, as a teenager or as a kid. But yeah, I, I just didn't like rules and regulations that made absolutely no sense. And uh, that's why uh, today and always, uh, you kind of have to learn. You ask, you, there's people, I don't care how old they are. In fact, a lot of younger people always have much better ideas than a lot of older people. But it's really the creative mind. Because I think a creative mind is always young. Because every day you wake up thinking creatively. And you can't get away from it. So if you have a new dish you want to make, or there's a new style you need, uh, you need to just do it and follow your instincts. Certainly at this stage in my life, I spent yesterday, and I don't usually on weekends go shop stores, but I shopped a bunch of stores. And I came back with a whole new point of view, not new point of view, but I came back with an education. You know, went to a few stores and said, wow, this, that, and the other thing. And I came back thinking, wow. And when you're going to these stores, what are you looking at? Because on this podcast, what I've learned is when I talk to someone that watches basketball, for instance, or football, or, you know, they only make pastries, whatever, they look at it in a completely different light than the average person. So uh, they can break down things and they see patterns that are completely, you know, hidden to the normal person. When you go to a, a store, what do you see that no one else sees? Well, it, it's a store, it's a house, it's a restaurant, it's any space. I, I see uh, a point of view, or I don't see it. And the first thing I must, I must see, it's not a rule, I have to see it. I like to look and I feel uh, if they're in fact communicating clearly and articulately with the consumer, me. In this case, I, I always act like I'm a customer. And uh, so the first thing I see is, uh, wow, this, and it takes 10 seconds or 10 feet to feel it. So if I walk into a restaurant, you know, I feel it. Uh, I want to eat here. I don't. Now, the food could be great, and I probably do want to eat there, maybe. But a vibe is very important. In, in, uh, in the apparel world, the product is important. The color, the palette, uh, the... Uh, uh, how it's presented, the mannequins, and, and you take it in almost immediately, and the staff. Because if you have a good staff in any business, you feel that immediately also. Good team. With all this data, right, how do you know you're right? Well, uh, the data is overplayed, in my opinion. Look, I when I was 23 and a buyer at Bloomingdale's, I had a lot of data. It didn't come out like, automatically, quickly. My data was the same data to a degree uh, that people get today. And it's ironic because data is what's selling, what's not selling, 
customer information to a degree. Now, this is many decades ago, uh, but I lived uh, and died on my selling report. Now, of course, I spent a lot of time um, at Bloomingdale's on the floor counting tickets. Those are the old-fashioned way of seeing what's selling. Uh, So the data without uh, an ability to feel it, translate it, and look at goods or dishes or whatever uh, is just, it's an aid. It's not the way to get there. The way to get there is evaluating the data, evaluating how it looks. uh, And I think it's overplayed in the world. Uh, I I see a lot of startups that are talking about data. And uh, what does it mean? Will not tell you or teach you how to see around corners. It will not teach you. uh, Can you elaborate on that? Because that's something I find I have a hard time explaining. And uh, very excited to talk to you about this because so many things that you've said or what I've read or, uh, you know, mutual friends that we might have are like, you're always trying to figure out what's around the corner. I've never been able to successfully explain what that is or why someone (laughs) might be able to, you know what I mean? Like, I totally, 100%. Um, most people don't understand it. It's there's this thing. I I, I kind of think it's uh, not nurture. I think it's nurture. I think it's partly DNA. Because uh, when I meet a lot of people, I'm always curious about background, what they did, if they're musicians, artists, physicists, or engineers. Well, where'd you grow up, and what'd your family do? In a sense, it doesn't always. You can't always connect the dots. But seeing around corners in my mind, is smelling something that's going to come, and uh, and it's not that complicated, really. It's going to kind of be very important uh, in the world. Uh, now, uh, but that's inside of you. When I say very important, it's all relative. It's only schmatas we're talking about, or maybe a dish or two. But when you see around the corner, uh, you, you're, you're looking ahead and you're seeing things other people are not necessarily seeing, or else everyone would have do what you do and do it at the same time. So you've created a, a, a business that sees around corners, and, and it's your own instinct, it's your own vision. And uh, for me, explaining it is very difficult. Uh, I think there's very few people in the world I meet who I'm aware of, because they're there, who see around corners. And that's only being ahead of the consumer, seeing what's coming, seeing what's trending. And there are always signals. It's not like it's a magical process. There are signals. If I see something happening two or three times in my own mind, they say, gee, you know something? Uh, Maybe uh, we're on, it kind of validates what your instinct says. So when I look around, and see someone, you know, again, it works in every business, doing something uh, that validates what I feel, uh, then I think I'm on the right track. So it's not like grabbing things out of the air. There's a, a process to it that's inside of you, and uh, and you feel it. So this morning I spent uh, uh, the time looking at all of our spring goods on order, uh, because we're uh, hopefully going to open up a store. We have a temporary store at Alex Mill now, and we needed to buy for the store. So we went through next spring's goods again. We looked at it, but because I actually went out yesterday, Sunday, and uh, today's Monday, I'm not sure whenever this gets broadcast, and I looked uh, at what I saw and learned visiting 
four or five stores, just competitive stores who I know do pretty well. Uh, my view changed today, one day later, on what is going on in the world. Now, if I sat in, in a concrete box and never looked at anything, I couldn't see around the corners as well. So it's studying always. It's feeling it. And seeing, I, I always look for validation. Uh, now, sometimes the validation is, like I bought a few things uh, for my uh, grandchild, but I bought them because of fabric. Now, they'll be for her, but on the other hand, I showed the fabric to our team this morning and said, I love this fabric. And you can't argue with the loving of something. Uh, and we're going to probably do something along the ideas of that fabric. How do you know you're right? You know what I mean? And like, when, um, I, when I mean this is, when you have an idea, you see it, you think you're right. And how do you know you're, how do you explain this to your team other than, uh, and I've heard that you'll just tell everyone simultaneously when you have an idea. How do you know everyone. that's an effect? Not everyone, yeah, but I like, do. You do uh, to well, everyone? Well, the loudspeaker, J. Crew, I, uh, if I had something on my mind, uh, I, I went on the loudspeaker and I told 1,500 people. And I ask, what do you think sometimes? Now, you know, you're just kind of looking for a certain, and it's information. Uh, but at the end of the day, you don't always know you're right. Don't believe me. If I, uh, I, I I'm nervous uh, uh, about things, I, I get anxious. Uh, about things where, you know, we have a new, a relatively new re relaunched Alex Mill now. And uh, I think we're right about what we're doing. It takes time and you don't really know until it happens. I, I think about uh, when I joined Gap Corporation, uh, at Gap, we redid 400 plus stores, didn't test anything. We redid, threw out all the old goods put all the new goods in. I'll never forget this. And we're sitting at a meeting in Carmel, California. Not my favorite place and, you know, whatever. It's you know, <laughs> not great energy there. No offense to anyone who lives there. It's beautiful. Um, and we're at a, at a, this is in uh, June or July prior to August, which was the relaunch. And we're talking about what happens if it doesn't work. I'll never forget this conversation. We are in deep trouble at the corporation. We bet on, with Don Fisher and I, redid 430-some-odd stores. Uh, we put in all new goods, a whole new concept. And there we are, public company, going out and betting on it. Now, uh, I will tell you, the anxiety of that is not we know it's going to work or not, uh, but it took off like a rocket. Uh, and by the way, you don't have that much fun when it takes off in a sense, because now you're worried about keeping up with the rocket. Can you explain, because the listeners may not know, and I was, I'm old enough to remember what Gap was. What was Gap before you showed up and what did you pitch to Mr. Fisher? To Don? Uh, well, it, I'll tell you what it was. It was, um, <laughs> there's a lot of examples of what things are today that were like Gap. I won't mention names. Uh, but it was uh, uh, it was it was founded on Levi's only. Uh, once the Levi uh, brand kind of didn't become 100% of the business, fair traded, it was a discount company, which is uh, similar to J. Crew. Discount business, uh, everything's on sale, not tasteful, not quality, 
uh, no point of view, uh, just a, a very, in, just not a good company. And Don knew that. Uh, it was a mess. And he knew there was no future, to his credit, if he didn't do anything and did it quickly. Uh, J. Crew was the same way, uh, a mess. But I, uh, I kind of like messes in a way because you have a critical mass and you have a name. And I always thought Gap was a very famous name, was J. Crew was also. And so you, you have a huge advantage. And by the way, I always find you got to look for the positives on a brand. Uh, Alex Mill, unknown to most people. So that's a big challenge. Uh, what do you do? Alex Mill, never heard of it. Uh, what do you do? Gap, heard of it, don't like it in those days, or J. Crew, but uh, you walk in and uh, you inherit a mess. Culturally, and don't forget, I moved from, why would you know this? 57th and 5th, where Ann Taylor was based, to San Bruno, California. Now, you talk about a culture shock. I overlooked the airport, the cemetery, and Highway 280. And I said, what am I doing in this building, in this corporate, whatever they're called in the suburbs, you know, office park? It was a nightmare for me personally uh, to be there culturally. And you have to change everything and anything about what goes on. So the mess is the business, the future, and the team needed to be totally re, you know, you got to have everyone rethink. So you become a huge salesman or saleswoman in a sense, with a vision. And they say, who's this Jewish guy from the Bronx now in San Bruno, California? I say the Jewish guy from the Bronx because I had that accent of whatever. No one knew who I was. And there I am showing up on a Monday morning. I moved from uh, New York Friday. And there I am in San Bruno. Oh my God, what am I doing here? But there I was. So um, is that when you started to you know, collect your own data and disseminate it to the staff? Like, how did you get all of these different teams throughout your career on board with your vision? Well, uh, you become to a degree, well, you know, for example, this is silly little stuff, but Gap was selling rigid wash jeans only. Levi's was then 38% of the company. And uh, we were selling corduroys two for 25, rigid washed only. Now, in 1983, you knew that wash jeans were like, that was an easy one. Hello, who's not wearing wash jeans? Now, rigid is kind of cool and trendy always in, in a way, but it takes five years for it to get softer. And, uh, and I just pointed out examples of other companies uh, or what I think. You're always selling and communicating with facts and detail. And you do that. I do it every day. Uh, of my life in the business. In that case, it was huge cultural arguments uh, because everything was price, price, price. And uh, it's not price, price, price. It's quality style. I always say this, quality style. Uh, value is really important to me. Uh, and uh, and the right goods and the right color. Quality style. And, uh, and to me, uh, the gap, the world needed a gap just like it needed Old Navy when we started it, because prices to me, and today I'm astounded at the prices of goods, of apparel. I go out and I'm saying, oh my God, because I know what it costs to make. And then there's that double profit. But I thought Gap could fulfill, a, 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 they call it white space today, a space that good style shouldn't cost any extra. 
And uh, that's what I felt from uh, right from the beginning, because uh, I kind of lived in uh, $1950 and $1960 in my mind. I still do. I'm astounded at prices. And it was, you know, this morning we had a meeting and one of uh, our team members, she's wearing a $300 pair of Chino pants. And I said to her, did you buy it on sale? She says, no, but I love the pant. It fit right. And I couldn't find a pant that fit the same way and felt for less than $300. And I'm thinking, $300, it's crazy. And then I'm thinking, great opportunity for Alex Mill, because we have $100 Chino pants. I've never spoken to anyone, and I've spoken to a lot of people, but I, I always had a suspicion that I thought the way you've already done it personally, right? Uh, how you just describe fashion and apparel and retail is how I've always thought about food. I'm like, what, why should you spend $500? Yeah, I'm happy to in moments, but there are ways to do this at a much cheaper cost. Uh, always. And and in apparel, uh, there's a double markup thing, which I stopped doing. Uh, What's a double markup? Well, if I pay 10 bucks for the uh, for this glass of iced tea, or whatever, or a shirt, uh, I, I am selling it to the department stores or specialty stores for $22 to $24. They are taking it from $22 to $24. Sometimes it's two and a half times, so $50 to $60. I can take the same goods if I'm paying $10 and sell it for $30. $30. And that's exactly what's happened. And everyone talks about currently direct to the consumer. It's been around for years. We did it at Gap. We did it at J. Crew. We did it at Old Navy. That's what we do. Brooks Brothers owned their label. No one could discount Brooks Brothers. And in those days, they were a much different company than they are today. But no one could discount them. Them and Benetton, I looked at. For some reason, because I used to shop for my kids for Drexy at Benetton uh, in Europe. Uh, and they made it and they sold it. And you could see the value was there. Brooks Brothers always had good value. But what I saw happening at Brooks Brothers, and I'll never forget this, they would actually start to take some quality out to maintain price. Because they didn't have any competition. They had no competition uh, except themselves. And they were, you know, this iconic company then, uh, a little traditional for me personally. And I, uh, so in those days, I was at Paul Stewart or whoever was the right person around. Uh, investment clothing. I've always believed you buy something, you don't want to throw it out the next season. So so that explains why this double markup thing. So in a funny way, if you're buying, it's not funny, it's true. If you're buying goods that are branded and wholesale, uh, not being sold direct by the seller. Um, and there's a lot of successful companies that sell direct, uh, that sell wholesale and direct to the seller. But it's very inflated. Now, for me, maybe because I'm in the business and I know what things cost, uh, to me, there was a whole opportunity in white space, a gap, to go in there with good taste, good style, cool clothes, and price them right with one profit. And it was uh, it was a huge success. Now, I say that in hindsight, because when you're dealing with it, you're always nervous about keeping it up. And when you pitch this, did you expect, uh, yes, we're on board with you, Nikki? Well, Don and I used to have the healthiest fights in the world. Uh, I say healthy. It wasn't fun then, but I marked down all the goods. Uh, I got there uh, the week of Thanksgiving. I left Ann Taylor on a Friday. 
I started work Monday morning in California. It was a foreign land to me, San Bruno. I, I, I commuted every week. I checked in and out of hotels. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't the way people who run companies today do it. But, uh, but uh, I, had, uh, I used to battle with everyone. I'm very, I was argumentative. I said, just do it. Try it. And I always say today, what's the downside? Uh, and we took all the goods down, had a terrible earnings year the next year. Because when you take over a bad company, you got to mark the goods down. And, uh, and people lived with it. I, I don't know what they were saying privately, because I had blinders on. You must keep your blinders on. Because if you listen to all, well, first one, I went from Ann Taylor, which was kind of a classy, nice company. We made it into a really nice, successful company. Again, much different today than it was in the early 80s. Uh, and uh, they just, uh, but you always go in, you have to really not let the noise affect your instinct and your feeling. And it's not easy, by the way. I, I was, uh, the gap was really not easy to get through, but you do it, you stay with it, you get consistent, and you got to show the small battles. So at Ann Taylor, for example, we had 25 stores. I took seven stores then. We didn't do this at Gap. And I took seven of what I knew were the best stores, Westport, Connecticut, 57th Street, Short Hills. And we started, because we were buying wholesale to a degree. It was wholesale. We converted it all because of the formula I talked about. And I just took care of the seven stores, testing to see how the customer responded, uh, if they had nice goods, quality goods, yada, yada, goods. And it was good. And then you say, well, if it works in seven or even two, Let's just do it. And we did it pretty quickly. How did you figure out how to manufacture your own stuff? Uh, really hard. So the first, really hard. Uh, the first thing we did is we went to three companies we did business with at Ann Taylor. Bern Conrad, uh, who I haven't, hi, Bern, I haven't spoken to Bern in years and years. Irving Benson, uh, who was seen design. We gave them all of our manufacturing to do. So we designed the collection together, uh, and they made it for us. Uh, and we had their pricing, so to speak, because we didn't know the first thing about manufacturing. I didn't at all. Uh, and that's, that's what we did. We opened up an Ann Teller studio, but we always went through vendors who we trusted and who can get the goods right. Gap Corporation, on the other hand, had a huge sourcing machine. They were huge. And they made all their own goods. So that was a great benefit. Now, of course, they made mostly bad goods. But at least they had the, the critical mass of making goods worldwide. And that, we do, all, all you do is you got to, all you do is you train people to think differently. It's always a battle to a degree. Uh, and by the way, you find your uh, compatriots in every organization who get it and they sign on. And, you know, what I do in every company that I've been to, uh, you know, Alex Week, looking at goods and meeting people. And then you have a list of uh, the goods were easy in those days because you kind of got rid of the bad dishes. Uh, that was easy. Didn't taste well. It's out. Replace it with something better. Mm -hmm. But we sell 50 a week of this. Find something you sell 100 a week of this and maintains the vision of your company, which whatever that will be. You know, I'm trying to see, like, understand myself. And do you think you get the best out of yourself 
in companies that you've, you've joined when it's a dire situation? Um, the best, yeah, I, I think uh, I don't give up. Uh, you get knocked down constantly in, in my world and in any world. You got to get up and you battle. And, uh, and you know, no one taught me that, uh, except, you know, it all starts in childhood, so to speak. But I, I was a contrarian. I was a battler. And uh, I don't know what, what's inside of me that just never gave up if. You give up when you say, you got to be rational about things. But you just, you kind of believe in what you're doing and you get other people, even if it's five people or three people you work with, because you go and do your therapy sessions with them every day. You say, am I crazy? Is this wrong? Is this right? What do you think? So I had two or three people, you know, from, from Ann Taylor, I brought him over to Gap Corporation. People I trusted, I knew, and they had the vision, they shared the vision. And those were my go-to every day, uh, so to speak. But you, um, it's really difficult to, um, you know, kind of live with it. Well, to sort of elaborate from, from my perspective is I get lazy when things are successful. I just think that's human nature, but particularly for myself. It's hard for me to constantly yeah. push. and. One of the things I've always wondered is why do I get the best out of myself when things, when failure is absolutely not an option? And it's, I don't say dire situation, but it's not a fun place to be. And when I've heard you explain Gap and everything that I've read, and when you then went to J. Crew, your contrarian positions and your sort of intuition where things need to go, your, your sort of moral compass as to how things need to be. I think that maybe, do you, would you agree, it's uh, one of the benefits of going to a, a company or situation that is not in a good place is that everyone's now open to listen to you. Yeah. Um, open-ish. Open-ish. Because yeah. it, that's one of the reasons why I think that it works a little bit better. It's not that it, it's, I find, again, when restaurant, when I have a restaurant that's doing really well, it's harder for people to listen to me because they're like, well, things are going so well. Right, right. And, and uh, I I have this, uh, it, it's not easy <laughs> to be this way, <laughs> but I spend most of my time in cases like that. Uh, I look for what's wrong, not what's right. And uh, people, I don't know if they say it or not. You know, at, at Gap Corporation, I never really appreciated this. I think for first 10 years, we had, like one of the top five stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. I never thought once about, I never kind of knew it. It sounds silly because I wasn't following the stock price. In fact, in 1987, it went from 78 to $18 a share. And there was a Wall Street Journal interview uh, that, I, I, in fact, I should read it again. I just said, it's long-term, stick with the program, be consistent. But for me, I, I always look for what's wrong. I don't know if people who work with me say he's never satisfied, but it's just when you visit a store, there's always something that can be better. Now, the, the two very high anxiety experiences was when I started Old Navy. I named it after a bar in, uh, in Paris uh, on Rue Saint-Germain, uh, which now closed about a year ago. And uh, the concept was not well greeted let's say by my board or others 
but I I got I, I started it because uh, Target was going to do a company that copied Gap at cheap prices, and I'm thinking I thought Gap was pretty cheap, and then I found out. Long story short, I went to look at the Everyday Hero at Target, who's was called uh, Dayton Hudson then, and I said this is a really bad version of of Gap, and you know by the way it's the same thing. Go see it, go feel, it, and then start to think about it. I had no idea of starting a company at Gap Corporation, but we, you know, we were a rich company then, and, you know, I like to feel and be creative. So I went, I looked, and I said, this is very bad, but I have a feeling they do a lot of research. Uh, it's that kind of place. I never worked there, but a lot of companies do a lot of focus groups, research, da, 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 which is a substitute for instinct to a large degree, I think. Uh, I've sat through a few focus groups. I'm allergic to them, but that's my problem. <laughs> Uh, because you're looking at historical and not what's forward. Uh, on the other hand, my focus groups every day are people in the stores, people online, and talking to customers. That's how I get my information. But, you know, people accuse me of being anti-research. I'm not anti-research. I just do it the way I do it. And I'd like to say my uh, my friend Steve Jobs, may he rest in peace, was the same way. Uh, 16 years working with Steve. And you know, we chatted, and it's what he felt. And then you do your own research. Anyway, um, I um, on the focus group thing, I went to um, Target. Uh, I then visited three Gap stores outside Chicago on the way back to San Francisco. I said, tell me, why are there so many markdowns in this store? Long story short, they said, people love our goods, but they can't afford them. I said, oh, my God, to myself, they can't afford them. I then looked at some statistics. 80% of the jeans in America was sold for $30 or less, and Gap started at $34.50. I'm saying, you know, everyday hero, Dayton Hudson, Target, whatever, maybe there's something here. Came back to San Francisco, gave everyone 200 bucks, 10 people who I thought might be the demographic. I said, go out to every discounter. I assigned them categories, and I said, come back and tell me what you think. No wrong answers. Two weeks later, sat in the room, I'll never forget this meeting, and they validated. So it's not like, oh, out of the air, we want to start Old Navy. They validated everything I was thinking was happening and what an article in the New York Times, it was purely an article in the New York Times saying it was going to be a cheaper version of the gap, did. And that's how things emanate. They start that way. And so it's not out of the air it's out of the air, but yes, oh my God, look at this. So we started Old Navy, huge battles internally. Why do we need it? What should we do? What do you call it? And Old Navy, driving to the airport in Paris, I see this bar saying Old Navy. And uh, wow, what a great name for something. And so I registered the name, and then I had a battle with my board. This one didn't like it, that one liked it. Two naming companies later, two consultancies hundreds of thousands of dollars later, I figured, you know, we, we got it, long story, we got it to be called Old Navy. Love the name. And you can't argue with what you name your kid. You can't argue with what you name a restaurant. So in any case, did that and uh, nervous as hell. There we are. We had, it wasn't, we couldn't use the name at first. We used Gap, Old Navy, da, da, da. And it took off really fast. Wild, wild. It was cool, it was respectful, and the whole mission was relatively good quality, good value, 
not on sale every day. Don't keep the customer guessing every day. Just give them day in, day out good value. Took off like a rocket. And today, you know, it's going public. It's an $8 billion company. And, uh, and so fell in love with the name, a phenomenal fee. They put the capital in, and now that's going public. So it's kind of ironic. You have a vision, and it takes so much time to get there. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're driving and want to listen to a podcast that makes you smarter about basketball, just say, hey, Google, play the latest episode of The Ringer NBA Show. Okay, playing the latest episode of The Ringer NBA Show. Does the NBA have a TV ratings problem? Group chat. Basketball is very good. The Warriors can hey, Google, turn it pause podcast. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Today's show is also brought to you by Allbirds. Everyone loves a gift they can feel good about and good in. And Allbirds are stylish, comfortable, and sustainable, so you can't go wrong. Allbirds streamlined design is versatile, so you know you'll look great anytime you lace them up. They come in a wide range of colors inspired by nature and a variety of silhouettes to keep you looking your best in with whatever situation you find yourself in this holiday season. Ladies, the Tree Breezers are your new go-to flats that will have you feeling like the belle of the ball at any holiday party. Meanwhile, the Wool Runners, which are made from ZQ-certified merino wool, will help you stay warm while the Mizzle Collection, complete with Puddle Guard, will help you stay prepared through the winter's unpredictable weather. I love my Allbirds. My brother and sister-in-law sent me my first pair last year for the holidays. It's a great Christmas present because they feel like a new pair of feet. They're incredibly comfortable and they look great. Allbirds are the perfect gift to make the holidays a little more comfortable for everyone on your list. Give the gift of comfort this holiday season or get a pair for yourself at allbirds.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from one of the greatest chefs of his generation, barbecue master Aaron Franklin. You can learn French technique from Thomas Keller, and you can even learn about California cuisine from Alice Waters. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there is literally something for everyone. I recently saw that CEO Bob Iger of Disney has a masterclass. I definitely intend to sit down and watch that because he's a real hero of mine. The masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials so you can explore at your own pace. The All Access Pass membership gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. Masterclass is also an easy way to give a gift that's personal and meaningful, even for people who are hard to shop for. For a limited time, when you buy one annual Masterclass All Access Pass for yourself, you get another one to gift for free. That's an amazing deal. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang to get started with this limited time offer. Buy one All Access Pass and get one free to gift at masterclass.com slash Chang. And now, back to the show. You left The Gap, you left J. Crew, and maybe those companies aren't doing well without you there, right? And 
I've, I've wondered whether it's you or other people that I admire that have done extraordinary things because they think contrary, because they're so good at predicting the future of what might be happening around the corner, that I, 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 I still have a hard time articulating as to maybe that doesn't work as well when people believe that the success is guaranteed. Yeah, and that's what well, I want to explain. It can't work as well if you think it's guaranteed because uh, you hit a wall. How many times? I don't know if you've hit any walls. Of I don't course. think you have. Okay, oh, yeah. Well, it's maybe, See, when you're a public company, you hit a wall, oh my God. I, I think there's two things working here. Uh, it's never guaranteed. And uh, and I also find the vision you have, one has for business, and, and I think it's interesting in, in certain sectors in a way, uh, almost every, except commodities, food's not a commodity, fashion's not a commodity, cars are not a commodity. So I, I visited, uh, to be unnamed, uh, a car company's he- design headquarters twice. I'm looking at the car, and I'm thinking, first of all, the CEO didn't go into the design room with me. I knew a director, and I knew a friend. Uh, so the CEO, uh, he or she, didn't go into the design room. And um, I looked at the car, and there's like four designers One's in charge of interior. I I can only speak about this one company. One's in charge of tires. One's in charge of fire. I said, where's the concept? Where's the vision? I was talking to myself, by the way. Who am I going to say to the CEO? Um, And and what happened is before I went there, I saw a prototypical car they were doing. And uh, and I don't know if this answers the question or not of success or not. It was a, a, a famous brand they had carried, and they were trying to bring it back. And I looked at it, and the first thing I saw was ugly wheels. And I said, who would buy that car? Because the wheels are ugly. It was actually a good-looking car, except for the wheels. But that was it. So you see, uh, I have a tendency to see what's not right, as I said. And uh, there's also, you have to kind of have people who, uh, well, if you get comfortable or you think it's going to be successful, then that's the beginning of the end. Arrogance. And uh, uh, confidence in a way, and nothing wrong with confidence. You have to show it outwardly. I don't know many people who do what we do, who are so confident all the time. The good ones are always worried. <laughs> I, I, I watched Steve Jobs for 16 years. I mean, he was one of the greatest operators in the world. And by the way, when I talk about product, if you're going to build a company, you got to build it operationally, financially, and product. But uh, I think we all worry privately. I don't know if there's group therapy sessions on CEOs who are visionary, but guaranteed insecurity lies beneath all of us, I think. Uh, Because then, and and it keeps you battling. Um, We worry about things that, and, and, you know, I'm the chief worrier in all, all the companies. I used to worry when I was a buyer at Bloomingdale's, like, I kind of thought Department 381 and 383 was like the world. No one was paying attention, except I was, and to me, I was the owner. But you are obviously successful because of these attributes and your character, to me at least. Do you think that it's these companies that you've helped become massively successful? I mean, one of the things is, like, how do you, how do you make sure that that DNA, that worry, is sort of integrated 
with everyone else. And that's what I think is the, the cycle of so many companies is yeah. you work your ass off, people suffer, and then they get there and they're like, I don't want to suffer anymore. We're, it's hubris. It's like, right. it's a human nature. It's almost <laughs> impossible to, yeah. to not hit. But the only companies or sports teams that tend to maintain that high level of success is because they memorialize suffering in some way yeah. where yeah. it's now part of the daily routine. And I wonder, it's like, you don't change. I think you're always worried, but maybe it's everyone else that are like, okay, Mickey, I get it. But they don't ever worry as much as you, which is why things go south sometimes. Well, I, I think people worry, but the degree of worry, and you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting with vision. Uh, I don't think it's the world's long on vision and creativity. Uh, and um, I, I think, you know, people will disagree or whatever, but whatever, I say what I think. Uh, I think that most organizations are afraid to take the appropriate risk because if they're public, oh my God, the stock went down 5% or 10%, you know? Uh, and uh, and the visionaries of these, Steve always came in, he goes, I'm betting the company today. Now he said it that way, maybe he was or not, because I'm not a technology person. But uh, I find very few companies allow the visions to pop up, to be creative, to bless, and uh, and I kind of worship creativity in a way. I do, uh, and they have to also earn the right for me to worship. But you know, I I had had people work with me who who I could never do this without. You have a team. Uh, you have a team of people who are working. They're getting it done. They're they're being creative and they're being operationally successful. You know, it's not just being creative. Uh, although in any job you have in the world, there are creative ways to do the job better. Uh, I met Howard Schultz in 1984. I was at Gap for a year. He came in and he described this thing. And I'm looking at Howard, who's very articulate, and needless to say, hello, I didn't invest. I had no money anyway, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a consideration. But uh, he came in to see uh, me, and he didn't just come to see me for the money. He came to see the Fisher family, and um, he described what he was going to do. And that's what I look in st- at startups today. Someone who has a vision, they're focused, they're pointed. They're confident. Who knows what went on underneath Howard in those days? But I still think he, till the end, worried about how coffee tastes, his coffee. Uh, but you know, but that vision is very hard to spot. Uh, and now, when they talk about data and algorithms getting there, uh, I, look, maybe it works for some people. Uh, to me, the product, the marketing, uh, and and the uh, the aesthetics are what works for me. Uh, along with great operational skills. Your son knows all of these stories. Yeah, he right? doesn't want to hear them, but he knows them, right? So what does he ask you then? Um, it's a good question. He'll ask me um, about a lot of stuff, but not necessarily in front of the team, uh, because he does know a lot of the stories. And Alex, he's more involved in uh, sourcing and operations, uh, he has a very good point of view on style and taste, but that's that's not his job. He's not he's he's involved in merchandising to a degree, but he has his place in the company. 
we all have our places. Uh, you talk to me about stuff that it's foreign languages and someone does that better to me. I, I talk to him about kind of stuff that I look for. He asks me about why do you reach this decision and so on and so forth. But, you know, we're all different. And being a son and maybe a daughter, my daughter's not in the business, uh, maybe a daughter, it's very hard to, uh, I hear this from constantly from people who have uh, uh, sons uh, and sometimes daughters working with them. Uh, but it's a it's a hard position to be in. I could never work for my dad. Yeah, it would be impossibility. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, because well, he was in the restaurant business, then he got in the golf business, and oh, he's wanted he? okay. help out. Yeah. yeah. Well, my dad never really had a business, and you know, whatever. So I didn't have it. <laughs> I, I always fantasized, by the way, as a lot of kids who grow up without much, about having a dad who had something I could work for, and oh, this is my future, but. You know, Alex didn't, I had kind of invited myself in uh, to Alex, uh, but I, I fixed him up with Samsac and uh, Alex knew that we needed to do something more to grow the company, but it's hard. It's very hard. So how many companies have you either started or taken from, you know, a crisis position to success? Well, um, how many? Uh <laughs> Well, Ann Taylor, Ann Taylor, but it was a small company. Still and, six, and, very and successful. No one, well, it was a $25 million business. Now it's a $3 billion, whatever. I left in four years uh, because it was owned by, uh, taken over by a bureaucratic department store uh, who I really didn't like reporting into them. Uh, then I was uh, at Gap Corporation. Uh, we took that from 400 some odd million to 14 billion. Started Old Navy. Started there. Old Navy in 1994, which along with Madewell were the two most exciting in hindsight things I've done. Because you name it, you build it, and then you watch it grow. And it takes a lot of time. Old Navy didn't take a lot of time. And I couldn't have done Old Navy without the strong partnership of the Gap Bank. And Don, who was chairman and controlling shareholder, was an entrepreneur by nature. He did stuff I didn't do. Uh, I did stuff he didn't do. So he was willing to take a bet on the company. Uh, Banana Republic was there. Uh, he had just bought that. Uh, he had bought um, Pottery Barn. Uh, none of us knew what to do with Pottery Barn. Did you work on Pottery Barn stuff? Uh, no, uh, it was a good brand, but we didn't. What do we know about Pottery Barn? You know, it's hard enough to do one thing well. Then you got four or five things you're trying to figure out. I, I don't believe in four or five things, but well, sometimes it happens. So uh, we sold Pottery Barn pretty quickly. It was not going to be good. Banana, uh, we took over. It was about a few hundred million dollars. We built it to plus two billion, but I never felt personally that Banana achieved what uh, I guess I would have wanted to achieve in terms of being that brand that stuck. I mean, it's a big company, but it never, for me, uh, in other words, I didn't find myself being that successful leading Banana Republic. For what reasons? Uh, I, I think it was hard to put together the right design team. It was really, you know, it's a, the creative team. Uh, I think, you know, it was the uh, Safari thing, which was great in its early days. People don't remember. Yeah, like, right. But, and the stores were terrific. Collect, yeah. But you can't take something to novelty and build a great business out of it because it, it goes and were then you responsible for that transition from having a Jeep Safari thing yeah, in the yeah, front to yeah. what it is today? Well, uh, today is different than what, uh, yeah, uh, I'm responsible for the uh, for the 
you know, I, I left it alone for three years there because I wasn't invited in. And then while it started to plummet, uh, Don and I said, well, Don, I think I can help. So I'm responsible with the team. And, uh, but you, anything that's too novel doesn't last that long, you know, and if it doesn't make sense, you know, uh, banana was great with five or 10 stores, 20, 30, 40 Jeeps in the store wasn't good. Although we put the pickup truck in old Navy because I thought that made sense as a kind of part of the environment. Uh, And then there was, uh, old Navy gap, um, and, um, Old Navy Gap Banana, and then a J Crew, uh, and we uh, and then we started Madewell uh, in nine in two thousand and four five. Once Gap went public, uh, and it's always easy to do it when you have the bank of Gap and J Crew, and now their bank doesn't is not helping us grow Alex Mill. So you know it's a different environment when it's your money. Now you're helping out your son, but you've been on several boards, and you're still on several boards. Well, he'll say, Alex would say, I'm more than helping. Because when I say I'm helping, (laughs) he says, come on. He says, you you know, we need you here. Because you're you're the guy who's been there and done it a hundred times. But your record is, you're you're batting a thousand. Yeah, well, I I think, you know, I I think uh, my last uh, years at at Gap, I felt, uh, you know, I was let go. And uh, uh, I thought it was a little premature, which it was, to let me go. Uh, we had a couple of rough years and uh, business. Uh, and, and I knew at the end when I was fired, I knew it was, I felt it coming back uh, because, you know, it's part of the thing. I, I read about that basically yeah. a month after you were let go. Yeah. The stores right. were crushing. Yeah. yeah. And, and Don called me, congratulated me on, you know, turning it around. And here I am, like, at home, you know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it was uh, it was a horrible experience to be fired after eighteen years like that. With but, the things that had contributed to that temporary downturn, like what happens when you're not in control of that? I'm sure. What what, what were the reasons for it, for for that period for, of for, for my getting fired? Or, yeah. Well, like when or, Gap was going through that tough. It period. went through a tough period. That's all. It just you know the stock was low. Uh, the the economy it was a it was a, a dot com implosion, or whatever it was called right. the technology so, thing. So in ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, and we had too many stores. We were opening stores on every corner, and uh, I paid the price. Uh, and uh, it was interesting. Steve Jobs calls me the night before. He says you're getting fired tomorrow morning because they didn't tell him until the night before because we were friends. Uh, it was at a board dinner. No one was looking at me. And I said, you know, and I never really thought about it, but then I started connecting dots from the last three or four or five months. I said, of course I'm getting fired. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I said, I'm there. And, you know, I moved my uh, my desk onto the floor at Gap and Banana and Old Navy. I mean, I, I sat with the people. That's what I like to do. And, uh, and then we turned it around. How do you turn it around? The right goods, the point of view, you fix it. You know, that's what you do, and you don't let it get you down. Do you think that there's this um, this trait that leaders have that they sort of think that the problems will th- fix itself? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know anyone who's like that uh, because the problem with leaders are, it's not a problem. You feel you own everything no matter what. And I said to Don, 
I said, Don, who in this corporation, when I was fired, I said, cares more about your wealth ownership in the Gap Corporation than me. And I felt that way. So he owned 30%. I owned what was maybe 5%, uh, yada, yada. And I said, no one cares more than me. And I was, by the way, I wasn't saying this not emotionally. I said, you know, I was wondering if I stole, if I did whatever. I know I didn't, of course. But uh, who cares more? So I, I don't think anyone feels that it's that not responsible. If they don't, and there are a lot of CEOs I see, they're very happy. Run companies, get crazy money, I think. And they have that private jet that, by the way, as a perk, doesn't get any better. You get used to that. You get used to the 20, 30 million a year, whatever, uh, 10 million. It's hard to leave unless you want to build something and you're willing to take risks. And that's part of those that kind of, you could see who builds it. You know who they are. I think in the, the the history books, it seems like you as a risk taker, as a calculated gambler, doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. Well, I'm a very conservative guy in a way, really conservative uh, in my life. And, uh, you know, like this morning, we were uh, thinking about how many units do we buy of certain things. But not, I would never, I'm not that risky. I, it's all very, very well thought out investments. Uh, they sound risky sometimes the way I am. But no, you look, and you need a good financial team and a good a, a partner in the finances and in the balance sheet. You can't do it. And, you know, um, and if the partner's doing their job well, but, you know, that's stuff we can talk about later, you know. And over this run, you've been on many boards and you've brought up the Apple board and your friend Steve Jobs. <clears throat> That's probably one of the questions you get the most as to what that was like. Um, can you elaborate a little bit about With what Steve? you learned over the years and yeah. just learning from Apple and obviously the most iconic company the past 20 years? Yeah, uh, I, I learned, um, I, you know, you don't, uh, in a lot of cases, appreciate what it is that you see, what someone else does, what you do yourself, the, the uh, you know, your own uh, career. I, I learned from Steve that um, uh, that he was willing always to be creative, always. I learned, I didn't learn this, but he reinforced product, product, product. So every board meeting, he'd have the goods out covered by a gray cloth. And that was the highlight of the meetings with Steve. Look, they went through the check the, check the list finance, this, that. But when it came to the product and his vision, that was where Steve was so passionate about things and so on and so forth. I learned that um, take the risks without fear on the outside. I think inside he was, you know, always worried. Uh, and uh, But I also learned uh, that he was a very logical thinker. He figured out, for example, on the iPods, none of us got the answer right. How many iPods do you open up with? Now, I should have gotten this answer. And we all guessed, I said, 500,000, how many can you sell? He didn't say you're all stupid, but Steve had a way of not making you feel smart because he really was the smartest guy in the room. You know, a lot of people think they are. He said, no one knows the answer. Well, how many Walkman did Sony sell by year? 
hello, millions, two millions, and that was the answer. He used he used that fact as telling him what to do. It wasn't like you grab it out of the air, uh, but that was Steve. He was a great salesman, very seductive guy when he wanted something, uh, and uh, looked out beyond all of us. He just had a vision that went much further. And the other thing, and I, I get teary when I think about it, he was ill. You know, for his last three or four or five years of life, he was battling. And the iPad came out then, and, you know, he was uh, an amazing guy. Well, I mean, and this is something that I tell myself or other people that ask, um, with people that have been incredibly successful no more than Steve Jobs, People say that he wasn't that good at one particular thing. Is that true? <laughs> uh, one like, like he wasn't the best coder or engineer, or uh, like it, what? It was this but, collection of things that made him whatever but who he is? was. Who is? Who but people think that all? they need to be the best. I still think I need to be the best at this. No, you you know what you're good at, and then you surround yourself with people who are the best at it. Steve had lunch with Johnny Ives every day. He was there, and Johnny and he were great partners. And uh, and and someone like Johnny, who's a creative guy, you know, needed a Steve in his life, I guess, because I think the creative teams need someone with the vision, and they say, "I get it, uh, do it, take the chance, take the risk." Very few organizations, I think, are like that. But Steve was—he was the organization. He was Apple, and Johnny was his partner. And uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, but none of us do this alone. Uh, without the creative go-tos, and not just creatives, disciplined operating people, finance, technology, uh, it, it's, you know, although if I interview a technology person, I have no idea what they're talking about, but then I count on someone who might. You know. For someone that sees trends as successfully as you have, do you have any thoughts about where the restaurant industry is going? Um, you know what surprised me about the restaurant business? Uh, how the food never lives up to the hype. <laughs> you know, th that's, uh, and I think, um, and and uh, I think it's going where people like yourself take it, focused, uh, special, unique, uh, with you as the visionary. Look, I, I was good friends with Keith McNally. Uh, and I still am, but, you know, Keith's been through personal problems. And, you know, there's very few people in any industry, frankly, and and you can count them on one hand, may, maybe in the restaurant business, you know, there was Let Us Entertain You in Chicago. I, I don't follow it anymore. There was the guys in San Francisco who I was involved with to a degree, I'm forgetting. Oh, Bill. I don't know if you know these guys. Uh, I forgot the name of the company. Uh, sorry, Bill. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I think it's going to. Uh, I, I think there's. I think there's got to be a dropout to a degree. You think it's a bubble right now? I, I think it's a bubble because I don't think it's earned. Uh, again, purely personal. I go to a restaurant, and I'm saying, uh, I I don't get the value. I don't get the food. It's mostly to me. It's about the food and the environment. 
So I, I don't know if it's a bubble or not. Everything kind of enters a bubble. You would know much better than I do, but I am disappointed in being disappointed in food. But I think that there have, have to be similarities because I don't really look at the restaurant industry to find information about where it's going. I look elsewhere. And for someone that's highly unfashionable, I always look at retail and fashion as to where things might be going because it's just a little bit more fleshed out. Right. And you see how much, um, you know, uh, not just Amazon, but some of the discount retailers like H&M and Zara have just destroyed everyone in terms of competition. I don't know if H&M's doing well, but I think Zara's still doing really well, right? Yeah, Zara's a, a tremendously successful uh, corporation. Because they just decided to break the norm of how you do business, I well, think. Well, they, they, they very stylish uh, goods that no one expects to wear for a long time. Uh, and they're good on fashion. They're really good on, really good on fashion, very cheap. And how is the future going to change, uh, you know, clothes, clothes, retail in general, like the, the on-demand aspect like what do you think is going to happen because i i believe whatever your answer is is going to happen this exact same way in food well except food doesn't have this easy to go online thing i mean you can deliver it anywhere right uh, i i think what's going to happen again i always say it's purely personal too much choice out there way way too much choice uh and not great choices by the way if i go through the stores i was in uh i was in paris a few weeks ago just shopping stores for two days really disappointed I saw one or two shops. I said, wow, this is it. And I tell Samsek, I said, maybe you ought to go to Paris and check out this one store because they did it right. Uh, and then I walked through the department stores. When I got back from Paris, because I don't do this a lot, I walked through a couple of stores here, some of the, the upscale stores, and you see not great assortments of goods. Now, maybe it's buyers not editing correctly, but I don't think there's a lot of great goods out there. In my opinion. Now, to me, great goods are not defined as I'll wear it tonight and look good, which is maybe why all these rental companies are doing well. There's way too much. And I think that the fallout's coming right now. We're in the middle of a lot of companies that, that need to be restructured, uh, which you read about. There's too much of everything out there, restaurants, too much of everything. And if you don't stand out, and by the way, make a profit. A lot of these startups, hello, mm -hmm. when's it going to happen? So maybe WeWorks and and whoever else kind of said, oh, by the way, you got to make money in the business. You got to make money in the business. So what's around the corner then for, uh, for uh, fashion? Well, for fashion, I think what's around the corner is companies with great, I, I say this, I've been saying for 30, 40 years, value, style, uh, quality, uh, and I, maybe I'm leaving out a word. You say quality, value, and style. Just a point of view that emotionally connects. It's all about emotion in clothes, other than commodity businesses in clothes, which there are some good ones out there. Uh, but that's what it's about. It's so crazy to me that that's exactly, <laughs> basically what I tell everyone yeah. within my company, what Momofuku needs to be. Regardless of our price point, it has to be value. Yeah, always. It has to be, and it has to be emotional. And it has to be the person at that front desk. It's got to be like the hotel person. You've got to walk into a restaurant and you've got to feel it. And that person is critical. Uh, and in a store, it's the same thing. Give me 10 feet. Give me a, come into the store 
or into the restaurant. And please don't make like I'm doing you a favor by being here or you're doing me a favor by checking my name off a list. That's Then I'll never visit again. If you were going to start a new company and it wasn't working with your son, just to give some insight as to what you think the future is going to hold, what would you open up as a store, well, as a company? What I did the, the day after uh, I left Gap, Don said to me, he said, well, um, by the way, the Gap business, when I started, I had a list of all those products for startup. This is hello 30 years ago. I had them and then there was Gap, so I changed it. If uh, I would do, uh, and I think there's some pretty good players, I would do, if I if I had to do something, um, I would do one of two things, domination by a category, or I'd open up, probably what I'd really do, and I, I said this to Sears and Kmart years ago, uh, I said, make Sears the most important apparel company in America. Classics, you have great archives, sell them at great prices, and take this thing. It's kind of Old Navy in a way, because uh, I thought Old Navy in the old days, very promotional now. It wasn't a promotion. I thought Old Navy was in fact, and maybe it was right because it's $8 billion. I, th I thought Old Navy was kind of the future uh, then. That was 20 years, 25 years ago. If I had opened something up today and I wanted to have fun, I'd pick a category or two or three and just own it like crazy. Point of view. Hmm. You know, it's kind of like what the sneaker company uh, Allbirds did. Uh, and the question there is, will it survive with one product? Uh, and But, you know, I, I, that's what I do. I think it's easier, less complicated, and fun. All right. Anything else that you want to tell anyone? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Whatever. I'm thinking, but the answer in food is I'm not sure what. What? What? what, what yeah. I think you just explained it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's focused, it's value, I, I, it's I, point of view. I, I like being the best you can possibly be uh, with a focus. Can, can stores that sell clothing still exist when uh, online retailers are only going to become more powerful? Uh, 100%. Um, and I, I say that because you can't feel it, you can't touch it, return rates are high. And uh, I think cool stores are here to stay. There's just not a lot of them. You you walk around and tell me what you think of the apparel offerings in America. And I don't know who can afford to buy designer clothes. I know they sell them, but uh, maybe, you know, I live in Bronx prices, so I, I look at designer clothes. Although uh, my son was making, well, I was complaining about prices. He goes, Dad, what'd you pay for your jacket? <laughs> He knew, he knew kind of where I got it, and I didn't answer. But, uh, you know, but I amortize my clothes. You know, I don't want to throw things out. But uh, walk around. You'll see what, what, what's going on in there. It's not a lot of great stuff. Um, did you say you guys are opening a new store for Alex Mill? Well, we're, we're looking and negotiating right now for another store in a much more trafficked location. And uh, that's where my conservatism comes in. I'm, I'm very nervous about paying the rent. And, and we pay the rent. It's not like Hello Bank pays the rent. It's not a, it's, there's no venture money. Uh, I, I, I enjoy not negotiating with someone on an idea. 
uh, but we're tiny. We're really tiny. And, you know, but everything starts tiny. Walmart had made yeah. a buck the first I day. Mean, I if guess. I was a betting man, I would bet that Alex Mill will not be tiny much okay. longer. Well, which, well, <laughs> I, I hope you're right. But as long as we have fun doing it. Absolutely. Well, uh, honor to have you. I know you don't do too many interviews. Uh, so uh, I was shocked that this happened to begin well, with. Well, so. our, our mutual friend Bill set it up. And, uh, and I, I like people who do what you do because you've done it and you'll keep doing it and that and that's interesting so it's really nice to see you and chat and schmooze thank you so much okay cool great well that was my conversation with the great visionary of retail mickey drexler uh again if you are a listener that works in the culinary world, maybe you might not have put two and two together and maybe this wasn't your cup of tea, but I want to listen to this again because I think that Mickey drops a lot of important wisdom that I'm trying to incorporate in how I think about the future of this business because things are moving at a rapid pace and it's harder than ever to sort of predict and prognosticate what's around the corner. And uh, some things don't change. And I think how he thinks about creating quality and value and doing something with an interesting point of view will never go out of style, regardless of how we eat. And I wanted to sort of get quickly, since we reversed this with Ask Dave at the top of the podcast, a very quick sort of question for my opinion as fact. I think we have underestimated how technology is going to change how we eat having dabbled in food delivery service and how that ghost kitchen thing is going to work. I have my reservations about the whole thing, but I think that what Mickey was talking about was the constant change that happens in every industry. I wonder what it means for our business. And I think that we need to be really prepared for what is happening. I think two things that are happening. Number one is people, at least in urban areas, are ordering more for delivery from Postmates and Seamless and Uber Eats and such. But also, I think people are cooking more at home. I don't have any data to suggest that, but I think that that is true. And I'm not going to opine too much about the future of food and delivery, although I think that we are underestimating the significant impact at how it's going to dramatically alter the future of the restaurant business, unequivocally so. And I think that one of the things that is happening that we are underestimating is how much more knowledgeable cooks are today, not just cooks, any diner. If we're in a restaurant business and the whole idea is to celebrate and to eat out, maybe we're going to have to shift our focus on how and what kind of restaurants we open up. Because again, I haven't looked into any data. This is just my gut intuition telling me that more and more people are cooking at home. So if a family or an individual cooks at home one to three times a month, that's 5%. And usually they go to a restaurant, that's like 5% of your bottom line or top line, depending. And I think that's a significant amount. And I don't think it's something they complain about, but I do think that we need to take an account as to what kind of restaurants we need to be opening up and what kind of things we need to be offering to guests to encourage them to go dine out. And I'm certainly in a period of reflection because I'm trying to genuinely listen to someone like Mickey's advice. And the one thing I feel like we are misunderstanding is the home cooking element and the fact that you have so much more information. I'm not just talking about meal delivery services and home cooking kit services. The fact that you can go grocery shopping and have all this access to information about how to cook global cuisine 
whether it's through YouTube or social media or a variety of websites out there, I think that is the thing that we need to be worried about present time. I think the future is going to determine a dramatic shift in how food gets service to us uh, when it gets delivered because that future is near. But for the time being, I think restaurant owners need to think about the home cooking issue and how people are going to be more comfortable eating at home than ever before. Some things are cyclical. I could be wrong. It's my opinion. That's why this is my opinion as fact. And I'll leave it at that. Anyway, I wanted again, thank you to Mickey Drexler for joining us. Thank you to Carol Song for letting us know about Daniel Song's birthday. Happy 40th again, Daniel. And again, thank you for all you do for this country. Appreciate it, guys. Stay tuned next week. Bye.